You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Hertzbleed side channel issue affects Intel and AMD processors. An Iranian spear phishing campaign prospected former Israeli officials. We got Patch Tuesday notes. A look at software bills of materials. Russia routes occupied Ukraine's internet traffic through Russia. Intercepts in the hybrid war, the odd and the ugly. Deepin Desai from Zscaler joins us with the latest numbers on ransomware. Rob Boyce from Accenture Security looks at cyber invisibility. And finally, criminal wannabes and criminal publicity stunts. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. Researchers from the University of Texas at Austin, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and the University of Washington describe Hertz bleed, so-called from the measure of frequency, Hertz, and also a punning allusion to the earlier heart bleed vulnerability. The researchers characterize Hertz bleed as a new family of side-channel attacks, frequency side-channels. Under the right circumstances, an attacker could extract encryption keys via remote timing. Hertzbleed is a difficult issue to address since, as the researchers point out, it's not really a bug, but a feature of how the processors function. Intel has issued workarounds to mitigate the risk of exploitation. Checkpoint describes a complicated spear phishing campaign that prospected former Israeli officials and some American targets as well, It used persona and subjects tailored to the target's interests, and it employed URL shorteners to further obfuscate the social engineering. The threat actor used a legitimate service, Namecheap's Validation.com Identity Verification Service, to lend further credibility to their approach. Checkpoint attributes the campaign to the Phosphorus APT, long associated with Tehran's intelligence and security services. Yesterday was Patch Tuesday. Microsoft issued 55 patches, including one that addressed the widely exploited Folina vulnerability. Adobe and SAP also patched their products. And today, Wednesday, marked the long-anticipated retirement of Internet Explorer. Microsoft has ended support for its once-widely-used browser. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday released three industrial control system security advisories covering devices from Johnson Controls, Meridian, and Mitsubishi Electric. Other ICS issues were also addressed. 
Security Week reports that Siemens and Schneider Electric between them patched 83 vulnerabilities in their products. Siemens addressed 59 vulnerabilities in 14 advisories, and Schneider Electric fixed 24 vulnerabilities covered in eight advisories. Google reports a considerable increase in efforts to adopt software bills of materials, SBOMs, SBOMs list all of the components, libraries, and modules needed to build a piece of software. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, that's NIST, released its Secure Software Development Framework, requiring that SBOM information be available for software, which gave an additional boost to the use of SBOMs. Google emphasizes, however, that SBOMs need to be used and mapped onto known vulnerabilities to highlight what could pose a threat. They offer an example from a Kubernetes SBOM. They mapped it against the Open Source Vulnerabilities Database and found that version 1.21.3 of Kubernetes contains the CVE 2020-26160 vulnerability. The usage of the SBOM in this case allows consumers using this version of Kubernetes to be aware of and address the vulnerability and remediate the issues. A future with widespread SBOM adoption will allow for more user awareness of the components and risks found in the software they consume regularly. Control of media and communications continues to advance as a matter of occupation policy in those areas of Ukraine that Russia controls. Wired describes how Internet traffic in particular has received close Russian attention. In some vicinities in Ukraine, Internet service providers have been forced to reconfigure to connect through Miranda Media, a Russian operation. Mobile networks are receiving comparable attention, with hitherto unknown companies now providing mobile service in those areas. The integration of the occupied region's Internet and telecommunications into Russia has been used to disseminate Russian disinformation and propaganda. It's also part of an ongoing campaign of Russification, that's extended to such matters as financial services and nominal citizenship, imposing the ruble as the local currency and issuing Russian passports to civilians who remain in the occupied regions. CyberScoop reports that the Belarusian cyber partisans, a dissident group opposed to the continued rule of President Lukashenko, has released what it says are telephone conversations between the Russian embassy and Russian consulate that suggests the Moscow-Minsk alliance is less fraternal than it's publicly represented to be. The cyber-partisans call their interception campaign Operation Heatwave. Cyber-partisans suggest that the recordings were made by the Belarusian government itself, an unbrotherly gesture, in the cyber-partisans' view. In any case, the content of the calls they've released is remarkably anodyne, discussion of setting up a new facility, calls from people asking about their COVID vaccination certificates, inquiries about immigration, a request for advice on how to get a tow truck to Kursk, and so on. There's some mild bureaucratic buck-passing, but on the whole, the staff in the embassy and consulate seem patient and conscientious enough. Cyber-partisans say they've got more coming, but if they're hoping for a greater effect, they should look for scandal, vilification, double-dealing, and so on. The material they've released so far doesn't at all show the Russian diplomatic staff in a bad light. We don't know, but so far at least, they seem nice. Far from anodyne, however, is another recording of an intercepted call. 
collected and released by Ukraine's SBU, the Security Service of Ukraine. The call, which the SBU says was between two Russian intelligence officers, discusses using Ukrainian detainees to clear mines and unexploded ordnance from Maripol. The Telegraph reports that the number of prisoners Russian forces have taken in the region is unknown, but is believed to total roughly 2,000. How they are being used for mine clearance isn't specified, although the two speakers talk about having the detainees dig trenches and sleep in them. But it seems unlikely that prisoners would be issued proper mine-clearing equipment, and in any case, explosive ordnance disposal isn't a job for the untrained and unled. Using prisoners of war in this fashion, whether they're being driven across minefields or simply put to work on military projects, is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. If the recording is authentic, the two speakers are casually alluding to and conducting low-level planning for a war crime. They seem banal, with no screaming and only minimal swearing, but they don't sound nice at all. War criminals never do. Vice reports that some guy, either a lower-tier hacker or just some kind of wannabe, had posted an ad since taken down for what Vice calls crappy ransomware. A picture that accompanied the ad showed the hand of the proprietor on the steering wheel of a BMW holding a blunt. The Beamer is, of course, a symbol of success. The blunt, which Vice sniffs, appears to be unlit, symbolizes the transgressive, untouchable, what-the-hell pursuit of pleasure. Anywho, it seems kind of dopey to advertise ransomware as a service on Instagram, of all places, and the low quality of the offering indicates that there's junk for sale in the C2C market, too. Buyer beware. Or maybe not. If you're shopping for ransomware, you deserve what you get. And finally, you'll recall that the Lockbit ransomware gang said during the run-up to the RSA conference and with a virtual shower of digital glitter as misdirection to have successfully hit security firm Mandiant. Mandiant, at the time, said it saw no evidence of an attack and that it was skeptical that anything at all had happened. That early reaction seems to be about right. CPO Magazine reports that the whole business was moonshine, a publicity stunt by Lockbit as it hoped to convince people that, no really, it had nothing to do with the now-sanctioned Evil Corp. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber.
In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Researchers from Zscaler's Threat Labs team recently released findings from their 2022 State of Ransomware report. Deepin Desai is Chief Information Security Officer at Zscaler, and I caught up with him at last week's RSA conference for an overview of the report. Ransomware continues to grow. Um, um, one of the key trends that we highlighted last year as well was double extortion ransomware. Mm-hmm. This is where ransomware families are uh, exfiltrating data from your crown jewel assets before they encrypt it. So even if you have a good backup hygiene and you're able to recover, uh, they will hold you accountable uh, by threatening to leak the data, right? So that's the double extortion trend. Mm -hmm. We saw about 80% growth in uh, ransomware attacks year over year, and Mm. majority of these were uh, double extortion ones. Wow. And um, um, eight out of these top 11 ransomware families that uh, contributed to this rise, uh, they were all using ransomware as a service uh, framework. Mm. We also looked at different industries that were targeted as a, uh, over the course of uh, last one year. Uh, and we saw manufacturing being the hardest hit one. In really? fact, yeah, one in every five attacks that we saw were targeted towards uh, manufacturing industry. And then healthcare and restaurants and uh, retail, those were the uh, next close ones that, that we saw as, uh, as the targets. In terms of the trends, is this continuing along the lines that you have all seen for the last few years or, or have there been any adjustments along the way? Yeah, manufacturing is uh, unfortunately uh, number one, second year in a row. Mm. Uh, there were a few changes. Uh, we saw uh, the attacks against healthcare go down previous year, but they are again up. We also saw uh, another trend actually that I would uh, call out is uh, as the government started going after these ransomware families, right? Um, there's a trend that we are calling ransomware rebranding. So mm. the same family, they're coming back into operations using a new name. Mm. And there are several examples of that that we have seen. Uh, I mean, if I were to name a few, Grand Crab was renamed to Revil, right? Uh, Revil right. <laughs> was, was gone <laughs> after and then they're coming back. Dark Side, which attacked Colonial Pipeline, they came back as Black Matter, right? And, and there are many such examples that you will see in our report where the goal of uh, the ransomware operators uh, is to make it easy for the victims to pay ransom as well because once... Uh, there is a government crackdown. 
uh, you know, they will ban uh, those uh, uh, organizations. There is, no, there is no way for the victim to pay ransom as well. A- mm. And then they're also trying to get away from the law enforcement pressure on that gang because now they're a different name, different group that was not associated with a high-profile attack like, say, Colonial Pipeline. Are you tracking anything in terms of uh, consolidation or the, the continued professionalization of these groups? Are there some that are rising to become the dominant players? Uh, there are several players. Uh, in fact, more new players come out as they see how, how much success a lot of these guys are enjoying, right? So not so much on the consolidation side, uh, but there are specific groups uh, that are more sophisticated than the others. Like uh, we're, we're seeing trends about leveraging uh, supply chain vector, for instance, hmm. right? And this is not the traditional downstream supply chain attack where they're popping a, a software vendor and then trying to push malicious updates. This is where they carefully go after third-party vendors that you may rely on. So one of the examples that we called out in the report is where they went after a, a company called Qantas Computers mm. and uh, they popped the network. They, they stole a lot of information from there and they apparently had access to uh, Apple's... Uh, MacBook uh, blueprints and, and oh, some yes. of the other computer um, yeah. sensitive information as well. So if you as an organization have a very strong security posture, but you still rely on third parties uh, who, who, are, who are not at the same level, they will go after them and then they will ask for ransom from you as well. So that is another trend uh, that we're seeing in some of the gangs. Another exa- recent example that I will call out, and this is... Uh, public information as well, where Aon uh, financial insurance uh, company got hit. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is the second one, major one, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We saw um, uh, one last year as well. So what they're doing when they hit this insurance companies is they will look at all the organizations that have a good cyber insurance with them, right? And that is a target list, right? Uh, These are the companies that if we go after, they won't hesitate to pay ransom because they, they're covered by these insurance agencies. So using that supply chain in order to come up with what their target should look like and then demand ransom, uh, that's another trend that we're seeing growing among these sophisticated gangs. What's your advice for organizations then? I, I, I suspect most organizations are somewhere down that ransomware mitigation path. Uh, there, are, there are probably very few who haven't done something but in terms of upping their game in that maturity level, any words of wisdom? Yeah, so uh, prioritize your zero trust journey. Everyone, like you said, is already embarked on that. But prioritize, if you haven't started, you need to get started yeah. as soon as possible. <laughs> um, my suggestion is focus on your crown jewel assets first. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Have your zero trust model centered around that. So you're protecting that first and then extend it to broader assets. So that's one. The other is employee security awareness is still one of the most important ones. If you look at the recent uh, uh, DBIR report, um, a vast majority of the attacks still starts with the human element, right? Where um, there was a phishing attack or credential stolen and threat actor gets in. So that's that prevent compromise phase. So in addition to having your zero trust security stack, you also should uh, focus on training your employees making sure you have policies in place that provides training at the time the incident is happening, hmm. right? And, and I can give you an example. So the way our, our platform is designed, it's a proxy architecture. Say you are visiting a site, uh, you, it, it was uh, looking legitimate in the email that arrived to you, you clicked on the link. Right. 
At the time you're about to visit that site, you will see a caution page from the platform that says, this is not what you what you think it is. It's a suspicious destination. Do not enter your credentials. Do not download anything from here. So that's that's an element that provides education at the time of the incident rather than after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, having something like that as part of your security policies is also extremely effective. That's Deepin Desai from Zscaler. Rob Boyce is Managing Director and Global Lead for Cyber Crisis and Incident Response at Accenture Security. At last week's RSA conference, he led a presentation titled Cyber Invisibility, Developing a Security Incident Notification Regime. I caught up with Rob Boyce at the conference for an overview. Well, it's definitely an emerging topic right now that's gaining a lot of importance uh, around the uh, mandatory notification process for cyber incidents. And so we're seeing a lot of uptick, especially after the Colonial Pipeline, of course, in the U.S. and Department of Homeland Security now is a lot more in- interested in seeing um, how we can you know, capture the intelligence around those types of events and then leverage it for the protection of other critical infrastructure providers. So we're seeing a lot there. It's really interesting. And we're seeing a very similar thing in the U.S. and the SEC trying to gain more transparency for shareholders um, of public traded companies. Uh, and they, you know, obviously believe that going through mandatory notification is going to provide those shareholders more insight into aspects of the organization's uh, cyber threat right. posture. How is industry responding to this? So uh, if we deal with critical, we'll we'll maybe divide the two. I think these two, especially as it pertains to the U.S., are the two main ones that we're seeing. Again, the SEC and and, and CISA. We'll talk about critical infrastructure first. I think critical infrastructure is seemingly reacting positive about it. I think they understand the importance of being able to notify, but there's still a lot of items that need to be determined. For example, we still haven't decided what is a covered entity, right? We know that the 16 categories of critical infrastructure providers and operators, but is it going to apply equally to them out of the gate or is it going to be over time? So that still needs to be determined. So I think once that starts to gain a little bit more clarity, we may have a different perception, but right now there seems to be, they, they, there's not a lot of pushback, we'll say that. Yeah, yeah. Right? The SEC side for publicly traded companies is a little bit different. Huh. Um, and there's, uh, I would say, a little bit more work to be done there. I think, again, the benefits of having notifications are somewhat obvious. But when we're talking about publicly traded companies, there's also a lot of challenges potentially with that. For, so there's uh, more concerns with organizations right now um, as it pertains to that. Because if you think about, if you were to notify within, I think right now the 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 um, recommendation for SEC regulations for four days. And as a person who deals with these incidents on a daily basis, in the first four days, we don't really know a lot. And so the information that we have is going to be pretty incomplete of what the true impact may be. It may be misleading in either the, the side of we don't have enough information or we don't know the information. So it's, it could be perceived that uh, if we're, we're sharing that transparently for the purpose of shareholders, how are those shareholders going to react to that information? They may be acting without having a full picture of the information, right? right so right. so it's going to be really interesting. And so there's there's definitely a little bit more pushback on that side. Is there any sense to, to what degree the, the enforcement regime is going to be rigid? Yeah, well, what um, at least for the, the ones that I've read for 
uh, for the CISA, for the for the new the new law that was passed, um, there are going to be uh, mandatory notifications. So they will have to notify. Um, there are criteria that have yet to be established. So once those are established, if you fall within that criteria, you will have to notify. If you don't notify and they find out, they can subpoena for evidence. So that so that is that is a process that has already been established as part of it. So what are your recommendations when when you're out and about consulting with your clients? How are you? preparing them to be on board with this. Yeah, well, it's going to happen. So we might as well start assuming that this is going to be the the new uh, process that will be coming down in the future. I mean, we are talking years to get there right now, but let's start taking a look at, you know, our incident response playbooks, our crisis response playbooks. How do we work in these notification processes? How do we start making sure that as these criteria for what a material incident is and a covered entity is, how do we make sure that, we're building in um, those notification processes when those applicable criteria do apply. Um, there's also going to be potentially new rules around preservation of evidence. So I think that will be interesting, and that's something that a lot of organizations have not had to deal with previously. Right. So, um, so how does that impact their standard processes and what they have to do a little bit differently? Um, so there's a, there's a few things that they, you know just will, will change, um, and you may as well start planning for it now because... It, it, all, all signs point to this is, this is happening. I would imagine, too, there are a lot of organizations uh, crossing their fingers and hoping that they aren't the test case. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> well, I, mean, I, think, I don't think that CISA will be able to apply this equally to all critical infrastructure out of the gate. So they will have to pick and choose. And, you know, I think we'll probably see them focus more on those portions of critical infrastructure that are the most important uh, for us. So, um, but, I mean, I don't know. But, yeah. but this is all going to be figured out in the next day of 24 months, I think, to be able to de- decide what is the definition of material incident, who are the covered entities, and a few, a few other things. And then I think they have 18 more months to roll it out after that. So we're talking about oh. 24 plus eight, you know, that yeah. many months to, to get to a resolution. Well, that's the maximum. That's Rob Boyce from Accenture Security. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>